You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Okay, so this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But let me um, tell you something before we get into this. Today's uh, sermon is going to be a little bit different uh, in that I'm going to read more scripture uh, than I've ever read in a single sermon ever. A lot of scripture. Um, And normally what we do is we'll read a a portion of scripture, a good chunk of scripture, and then walk through the text. Today I'm going to be explaining, uh, my hope is, to explain who the Spirit of God is. But I can't do that. That's like impossible. And so I'm going to let the scriptures explain who the Spirit of God is and hopefully just get out of the way. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to actually have a, because of the nature of today's sermon, a physical Bible, not a phone. Um, I'm not against phones. I have a phone. Um, I use my phone, and I have a Bible on my phone. And there are times when I really need that. But I know that I am also very distracted with my phone. And it's hard for me to be present with my phone. So I would, I would, I'm not going to do this every week, but today, if you could, um, if you could, even if you have the new iPhone, you're like, but I just got this. I don't care. <laughs> if you need a real Bible, no, not that that's not real, a physical, um, a paper Bible, there you go, a, a paper Bible, raise your hand. We're going to be flipping, okay, <laughs> everyone in the church needs a Bible. Um, uh, we're going to be flipping through this. Now, you might just share, you might run out today. Um, if you have a Bible at home, you just didn't bring it, that's cool. Just leave it uh, in, on the table when you leave. But if, if you need this at home and you don't have one at home, please take it. We're going to be flipping a lot through this, uh, through the Bible today. I'm going to show you a lot of Scripture. We're going to deal with some of this today, a lot of this today. So um, raise your hand. Ushers, just start throwing Bibles. <laughs> we're out. Well, too bad. Um, if you're around someone with a physical Bible, uh, look at their Bible. If you've not seen a physical Bible before, it looks something like this. All right? Paper, ink. When I first started studying the Bible, I was, uh, I read this, the same book I told you a couple weeks ago about the fish and the bone thing. Um, he said, you would, uh, and I don't think he said jeans, but I, I, I denim, I, I actually, I thought this when he said this. He's like, you spend a lot of money on a, a meal or a nice bag or something, but it was written in the 1800s or something like that, so it probably wasn't denim. Too bad. But you spend a lot of money on denim, and you won't, and you buy, you look for a $5 Bible. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, if you're going to spend, this was money on food, and this was money on, on clothes or whatever else you spend your money on, Invest in a good Bible that you don't want to lose and you want to always keep next to you and read a lot. So, I got one. I hope you guys get one too. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 12. Verse 1 and then we'll pray. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. Stop there. That's our text. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and I trust Spirit of the living God that you're going to speak to us. You're going to speak to us through your word. You're going to speak to us as we read the text. And I just pray that what happens today in, in its purest and rawest form is that I'm able just to read a few scriptures and then, God, you speak. And you kind of just show yourself, this is, what I, this is who I am. And this is what I do. 
and this is what I want to do. It's that simple. I pray, God, I would not try to be clever this morning, but just clear. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help, that you would lead us and guide us into truth. Your word is truth. We submit ourselves under your authority. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for some time now, since the beginning of the year. And it was a letter written by a man named Paul, somewhere around the middle of the first century, to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. Corinth was a very progressive city. It was a very pluralistic city, known for its wealth, its commerce, um, its entrepreneurialism, and its immorality. What I love about the church in Corinth, though, was that in the church of Corinth, there were all kinds of people that were there. There was Jew and, and Gentile, slave and free or just been freed, male and female, rich and poor. Some of the most vile sinners in Corinth started going to this church. And there was a church in the center of Corinth. Now this church was doing a lot of things wrong though. It was a young church. They thought they had it going on. They, there was times when the, thir- the church was kind of um, into itself, like, oh, we're so spiritual. We have all the spiritual gifts active. It got so confusing during one of their, a couple of their gatherings that they thought they were so spiritual. So because of their spirituality, they thought that, you know, if you're really spiritual, you speak in tongues. We'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. You speak in tongues. Well, to prove that you were spiritual, you spoke in tongues. So every time the church opened its doors, everyone would show up with a tongue. And no one understood what was going on. So people stand up and speak in tongues, and no one understands tongues unless there's an interpreter. And that's a spiritual gift too, and we'll get there in a second. If you're like totally lost right now, just hang on. you'll, You'll get back on the train in just a second. They thought they were so spiritual, everyone spoke in tongues. And Paul is saying, no one knows what you're talking about. They come to your gatherings and everyone's speaking in a tongue. And then you're taking communion and then you have the rich people drunk. So you have drunk people, tongues. And that's what kind of those two things might go together. I'm just saying. This, they, <laughs> like you're not even speaking a language right now. And this is your church. This is what's happening. And then so he writes to correct them. They had a lot of things wrong. One, um, one scholar writes this about the situation in Corinth. Gordon Fee writes, as former pagans... They brought to the Christian faith a pagan worldview. So all of these pagans that were not Christians or weren't even even, uh, Jewish in that sense, they they were Gentiles, they were coming into the church, and they came in with a pagan worldview and an attitude toward ethical behavior. Although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? What was, what was going on in the church in Corinth? An inordinate amount of Corinth was still in them. If I, was, if I could phrase this in a very modern way, it would be like this. There, all, all, most of us are former pagans. And we started coming to this church. And this room is full of former pagans. Or maybe even some current pagans. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Although we are the church of God in San Francisco, there is an inordinate amount of San Francisco yet in us. There is an inordinate amount of San Francisco left in us, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. There's a lot of things in our lives, just because we're Americans or Californians or even San Franciscans, that there's this inordinate amount of of pride in us and ways that we think and ways that we view um, money and sex and power and our time and our wealth and our, all this stuff that God wants to radically change without killing us. This is what was going on in Corinth. This, this letter 
is about this. It's about God taking out of the Corinthian church all of Corinth, but leaving them in the city. See, the easy thing to do is like, hey, just leave Corinth. Hey, run to the Bible Belt. Everyone run to the hills. Everyone get safe. Everyone live in a nice, quiet enclave of holiness. But Paul doesn't say to do that. He actually says to stay there, to live there, to abide there. But be citizens of the kingdom of heaven in Corinth. Be citizens of another kingdom in there because that city needs you. And this is why it's been such a beautiful and um, like a breath of fresh air as we've been reading through it. And God has been changing us through this book as well. Now, what is going on, what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is that the church has a culture. Now we're in chapter 11 and chapter 12, and what Paul is writing is that the church has a culture. Now, when I, know, I know when I say the word church, there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes with the word church. You might have had some very bad memories that come to your mind when you even walk into a church, and some of you today might have taken an, an immense amount of courage you had to muster up all your courage to even walk into this church this morning. And I'm excited that you're here. I'm glad you're here. And I want to say that I'm sorry for your hurt. The church has been known to hurt a lot of people. The church that we're studying today in Corinth did just that. The church was hurting people. And Paul is writing to correct it. And what it says in chapter 12, and what we'll get into in the next few weeks, we won't get it in today because I just want to talk about a few things today. What Paul is saying to the church in chapter 12 here is that the church is a community for the common good. The church is to be a community for the common good. Now you're looking at that, you're like, what? How is, how is the church for the common good? I'm going to try to convince you over the next few weeks that this is true. That the church is here in San Francisco for the common good of people that go here and for the common good of San Francisco. If you don't believe me, stick around. The church is to be a new community built by Jesus who gave his life to start the church. And the people who make up this new community are from different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, and they have different stories. Some of them were slaves. Some of them were free. They have different values. They have a different way of seeing the world. They were male and female. There were different socioeconomic makeup in the church. They were rich and poor. And God takes all of these different types of people and he gets them working together for the common good. How does God do that? How does God take a hippie and a hipster, a finance and freelance, tech and medicine, gay and straight, rich and poor, conservative and liberal, criminal and victim, Apple and Android, and puts them all together <laughs> under one roof. And he says, you will work together for the common good. How does he do that? How does God bring all these different people together? If you look around, our, our, uh, this church is pretty diverse. How does he get all of these different people in one room, under one roof, and he calls them by one name, the church. And he says, love each other sacrificially. Serve each other. Don't just coexist. Serve one another. How does he do that? See, normally people on the right and on the left seek to establish their brand of harmony by forcefully imposing monotonous sameness by seeking to limit di differentiation. We all have to be the same here, but that's not what the Spirit of God does. He actually fans into flame diversity. How does God take such diversity and then fan that diversity into a flame and use it for the common good? This is how. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. He does this by his spirit. 
The way that God does this, the way the church is, the, is a community for the common good is by the Spirit of God. God takes all these different people and makes them a family by his Spirit. And then he brings harmony to, the, to his diverse family by what we will call, what we call spiritual gifts. And so we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and it says this. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit. Now, this is what it says in your Bible. No matter what translation of the Bible you have, it says something like gifts of the Spirit. Now, the word gifts actually isn't in your Bible in the Greek, in the original language that the Bible, New Testament was written in. The, the word's not there. The word is pneumatica in Greek. And so Paul says, now about pneumatica. I want to talk to you about pneumatica. Now, what does pneumatica mean? The word gift isn't there. Translators put it there to help make sense of what Paul says in verse 4. Look at verse 4. There are different, I'd read it to you because unless you have your Bible open. There are different kinds of gifts. That's the word you use, gifts. Now, the word in Greek there is charismata. He says there are different kind of charisma there's different kind of gifts, and the word gifts there, what that means is it means a specific manifestation of grace. Charis is the word for grace. There's different charismata going on. There's different forms and manifestations of the grace of God appearing when you gather together. And so what the translators do to make sense of this text is they write the word gifts back into verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, But Paul really isn't right here saying about the gifts of the Spirit. What he's saying is this. He's saying, the best way to translate this is, now about spiritual stuff. Pneumatica. I want to talk to the church right now, chapter 12, verse 1. I want to talk to the church about spiritual stuff. Or another way of translating is, now about the activity of the Spirit. Pneumatica. Or another way to translate it is, now about the things the Spirit is up to in your church. Pneumatica. I want to talk about what the Spirit of God is doing in the church right now. This is what Paul is about to enter into. Now, to understand this, I think we have to do some Holy Spirit 101 in here. And by, the, and by that I mean we have to understand who the Holy Spirit is. And as I started, um, I can't, it's really hard for me to explain the Holy Spirit. Like, explain the Holy Spirit. And people use all these different metaphors. Well, the Holy Spirit's like a vapor, and Jesus is like ice, and Father's like water. <laughs> like, that, no, that's not. They all are that at the same time. That doesn't even make, well, it's like an egg. It's like you got, like, the yolk and the shell and the white stuff. That's like, that's not, that's, uh, it's just not, it doesn't capture it. And it's really hard to explain the Holy Spirit. Like, I was like, okay, I want to explain, I want to teach the church who the Holy Spirit is. And because it's so hard, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read who he is, and then, because it says that he does this, let him explain who he is. Cool? So let me read to you. Let's start in Luke. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I might take you to, to school here a little bit. We're going to read a lot of verses, but I hope it makes sense. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. The sound of pages turning. Unfamiliar sound in this room. I ain't going to lie to you. <laughs> Verse 26. This is about, this is the, the birth of Jesus. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, 
to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, like all angels do, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And then he explains what that means. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him a throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary's like, um, I got a question. How will this be? I'm a virgin. And then the angels answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit we see here was the agent by which Mary conceived. Not through natural form of pregnancy, but supernatural. It was like the Holy Spirit placed the child in her womb. Skip ahead a bit. Luke chapter 3. Luke 3, verse 21. Jesus has now grown. He's about 30 years old. He starts his public ministry. He starts it like this, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And this, it's a longer uh, section in Mark. Mark explains this way more dramatically, but Luke just gets to the point. He was a doctor, so he kind of just got to the point. Jesus was baptized too, and he was praying. And as he was praying, when he went into the waters, he was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you, speaking to Jesus, are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is Jesus' baptism. This is where we actually get the symbolism of the Holy Spirit as a dove, if you ever seen the Holy Spirit being depicted as a dove, this is where we get that from. This in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters during creation. And that word hover in Hebrew means fluttered, like a bird would flutter over the water. The Holy Spirit was fluttering over the waters of creation. And here, the Holy Spirit was fluttering over Jesus during his baptism. This is where we get the depiction of the Holy Spirit as a dove. Skip ahead a little bit more. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jesus now, right after this has happened, after Jesus was baptized, chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry, which is the most obvious thing, obvious verse in the entire Bible. <laughs> Fasted 40 days, and then he was hungry. He was human. Okay. The start of Jesus' ministry is characterized, so at the very beginning of his public ministry, he was baptized, and as he was baptized, he came up, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. The Holy Spirit was there at his birth. The Holy Spirit was there at the beginning of his ministry. And then the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, and he leads Jesus in the wilderness as Christ was being filled with the Spirit. It says there, he was full of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness where he had this face-off with the devil, and he won, if you didn't know. You should read ahead. Read it sometimes, a really good story. Skip ahead to verse 14 in chapter 4. Now Jesus starts his public ministry. 
And this is how Jesus starts his public ministry. This is probably one of my favorite um, kind of pictures in scripture. I've always said that when I get to heaven and I get the reel-to-reel of like things that happened, I want to see this happen. Like I want to I I see that. Can you play that back again? I want this replay. This is so awesome. Chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus starts his public ministry, and this is, how it, this is what it looks like in a synagogue. Jesus returned to Galilee after the wilderness temptation in the power of what? The Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, where he was raised. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up and read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, was handed to him. Unrolling it, so the, the, the scroll attendant gives Jesus the, 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 the reading for that day. He unrolled it. He found the place where it was written and he quotes this from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. To the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Is verse 20 up there as well? Let me read on, verse 20. Then, so he stands up and he reads the scroll. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. So he reads this scroll and goes, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me, and all this stuff. And he's like, everybody's like, oh, what is he going to say? Then he sits down and everybody's looking at him. And then he says this, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In a Greek it says he dropped the mic. No, he didn't, he didn't say that. <laughs> that would be awesome. So he's just standing, he's sitting there, everybody's looking at him going, what are you going to say about this scripture? How are you going to exposit Isaiah? He goes, today this has been fulfilled. It's me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is who I am. This is what Jesus is saying. He is called Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Messiah in Christ simply mean God's anointed one. That's what it means. What does Christ mean? What is, is that his last name? That was not Jesus' last name. Like Jesus Christ, that was his name. Look him up. No, that's not he, that was his title. He was the anointed one of God. He was the one upon the, whom the Holy Spirit came upon. He was the one the Spirit lived inside. He was the, the first, as we will see, the first comforter, the, the first paraclete. He is the Messiah. So what Luke does, and I love the way Luke writes his, his account of what, Jesus, of what happened with Jesus. What he does is he, he goes on and he just shows you what this means. He doesn't really explain it to you. He just shows you. He says, okay, here's Jesus. The spirit of the Lord's upon him, has anointed him. And this is what happens when you're hanging around Jesus. Verse 31, chapter 4. Then he went down to Capernaum. This is Jesus. A town in Galilee. And on the Sabbath, he taught the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. He didn't just speak. He spoke with one having authority. Like when he spoke, you, ha- you, did what he- you wanted to do what he said, and you had to do what he said. He spoke as one having authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. Now, do you see the juxtaposition? Jesus had the Holy Spirit, and this man had an impure spirit. So now, a face-off again. 
And he cried out at the top of his voice, go away. This is the man speaking. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, and come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down, and before them all he came out without injuring him. The spirit, this evil spirit, left him. And all the people were amazed, and they said to each other, what words are these? With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out? And what news about him, that news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. This is now a battle with the spirits. Jesus has the Holy Spirit, and this man had an impure evil spirit. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, he was anointed to preach good news. And here's the good news. You demoniac, you're not a demoniac anymore. You person that was possessed, you're not possessed anymore. Evil spirit, leave him alone. He was like reversing. Jesus was reversing the powers of evil. He was reversing, and it goes on. Look at verse 38 in chapter 4. Jesus left the synagogue, and he went home to Simon. Now Simon's mother, mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over, and he rebuked the fever. He said, fever, in my name, leave. And it left her. Like the fever was like, I'm out of here. And she got up at once and began to wait on them. And at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses. So word got out, this man is anointed with the spirit of the living God. He's like the spirit of the living God incarnate. And he's reversing sin, sicknesses, death, evil. It's like the spirit of God is, is now all in all-out war against the spirit of this age. And it's reversing, it's pushing everything back. And so they started bringing anything, everyone and anything that was sick. And they brought him all kind, various kinds of people with various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. And moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Let's go forward a little bit more into Acts chapter 1. This is Dr. Luke's second book. His first book was Luke. His second book, Dr. Luke's second book, was Acts. In the book of Acts, we read this. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Flip there. Verse 1. He says, In my former book, Theophilus, that's who he's writing to, I wrote about all Jesus began to do and teach. I have the word began underlined in my Bible. I suggest you underline the same word. Jesus isn't done doing and teaching at the end of the Gospels. He continues it on through the book of Acts, and Acts doesn't even actually end. It like just kind of falls off. And the reason why it does, a lot of commentators and scholars believe, the reason why the book of Acts doesn't stop is because you and I are a continuation of the book of Acts. You and I are a continuation of what Jesus is doing and Jesus is teaching even today by the power of the Spirit. We're going to get there in a second. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you all that Jesus began to do and to teach um, until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after suffering, he presented to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was still alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, you see how that was always there? 
Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago? Jesus is always eating, even after the resurrection. There was a part where the disciples were holed up in a, in a room and they were afraid because Jesus just died. And like, oh my gosh, Jesus killed Christ. They're going to come after us next. And Jesus appears. Peace to you. I am hungry. <laughs> I mean, he didn't really say that, but that's kind of what happened. He walked up, he's like, does anyone have any, something to eat? That's the first thing he asked them. He just walked in the room and they're like, oh my God, you're not dead. Or he's like, yeah, and I'm starving. Death just takes it out of you. My gosh. And then later, he, then he disappears. And they see him next when they're in a boat. And they're fishing because they all think they're giving up. Because Jesus is like, well, I'm just going to go back to doing what we did before. And they're out fishing. And Jesus was on the shore. And what was he doing? Cooking fish. I, you can't make this up. I mean, Jesus, this is... Anyway, sorry. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Okay, so this is after the, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He's spending some time with them before he's about to ascend to heaven. He's spending time with them. He says, while they're eating, I want to give you guys a, a command. Don't leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised. Wait for a gift. My father has a gift for you. I want you to wait for it. Which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, notice gift. The Holy Spirit is the gift from the Father. And Jesus said, I promised that you would get the Holy Spirit, and I promised you if you wait for him, he'll come to you. Now, I've already explained who he is to you. Just wait for him. Now, when, when did Jesus explain who the Holy Spirit was? Now, go back one book to the left to John chapter 15, the very end of John chapter 15. Should be just a couple pages to the left. John chapter 15, Jesus is about to die, be crucified, he knows it, so he's going to spend time with his disciples, and he's going to explain to them who the Holy Spirit is. John chapter 15, verse 26, he says this, when the advocate comes, that's another word for the Holy Spirit, when the comforter, the word there in Greek is parakletos, when the parakletos comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify of me. Now this is the verse that I'm hanging the sermon on right here. I'm just reading scripture to you this morning. I'm hoping that what's happening as I'm reading this is the Holy Spirit's testifying who he is to you. And Jesus says, and you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue because of me. And they will, and the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Did I not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you? But now I am going to him who sent me. I'm going away. I'm leaving you guys. But now I am going to the one who, sends, who sent me. None of you asks me. Where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. You're so sad that I'm leaving you. Jesus was with you for three years and he was leaving. You'd be sad too. But look at verse 7. This is profound. But, every, but very, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I, that I am going away. It is good that I leave you. If you were with Jesus and you're like, what, how is that even a thing? How does it even make sense? It's not good that you leave us. Jesus, you can do anything. Don't leave us. He says, unless I go away, the comforter, 
the advocate, the parakletos, will not come to you, the Holy Spirit. If I don't leave, he won't come. He, you, you need him. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you. More than you can, you can bear now. But when he, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that, I, that, he, will receive, uh, that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I have said the Spirit will rec- you will receive from the Spirit, and, and he will make known to you, and make it, he'll make it known to you. you, you I have to go. Because if I don't go, what Jesus did in his incarnation is he limited himself to time and space. One time, one space, one body. But what he says here, he's like, if I go away, the spirit that's in me, we already know the spirit's in Christ, the spirit that's in me is going to be in you and then you guys are going to take this everywhere. It's good that I go away. Now, go back to Acts. Jesus explains, now, what happens when the Holy Spirit actually hits the church? Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Let me read this to you. Here's the promise, and this is where it happens. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. All the, all the disciples that were there were in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a, the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that, sep- that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. They're all together and they're praying and Jesus is like, okay, don't leave. Remember that the spirit of God I promised you? Remember I told you he's going to come and live with you. He's going to be a comforter. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to empower you. All of those things, wait for him. You'll know when it happens. So there, they're praying together in one place. And all of a sudden, the doors blow open and the violent wind comes in. And then these tongues of fire, like these flames, came in and just rested on everyone. Just their head, just resting flame of fire on their head. And then they started speaking in tongues. This was, this was another language that they did not know. But it wasn't a language that no one knew because there were people that were around that heard what happened, that ran in the room, and they were speaking in tongues, and they were actually speaking in the languages of all the people that had gathered for this festival. All the people that had gathered for Pentecost, it was a Jewish festival. All of them that gathered from every nation that spoke all these different languages were hearing these people who were Galileans, as the text says, speaking in different languages. And they were praising God in that, those, that person's languages they didn't know. And they were going, what is this? You guys are crazy. And one person accused them of being drunk. It's like, no, no. No, you guys are just drunk. Okay, move forward. Look what happens in Acts chapter uh, 2, verse 14. Peter stands up and he gives an explanation. This is so important. Then Peter stood up with the 11. And he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. 
fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. When the Holy Spirit is active in a church, it can be explained. It's not like, oh, we can't explain what's going on. It can be explained by what Christ has done, who Christ is. That's very, very important. This is actually what Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about. You, you guys, when you guys gather, it's unintelligible. No one knows what's going on. There is, there is intelligence when, when people worship God. And so Peter says, let me explain what the, what the, what's going on here. Listen carefully to what, what I say. Verse 15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's no, only nine in the morning. What a weird, like, justification. What a weird, like, <laughs> like he didn't say, hey, guys, um, we're not drunk. We're godly men. It's like, we're not drunk. It's like nine, all right? <laughs> and you can imagine someone in the back is like, five somewhere. Like, no, we're not, we're not drunk. I promise you guys. Like, we might sound drunk. We're not drunk. And then he says this. It's only nine. It's only nine in the morning. Gosh. Verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So he goes to the Old Testament. And he goes, no, this is, this, this is like, this is what... Uh, God promised what happened. Just like Jesus, when he read Isaiah, he said, the Spirit has anointed me, and it's happening. Peter stands up and says, the Spirit came upon us, and this is what, what Joel said would happen. And then he reads, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women. It doesn't have to do with Jew or Gentile, men or women, everyone. Young or old, everyone. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is just a very brief picture of the Holy Spirit's activity in the New Testament. So now some review. Some review. The Holy Spirit was promised to the Messiah in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was active in the virgin conception. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. The Holy Spirit filled Jesus and led Jesus during his ministry. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus for ministry. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus for ministry of proclamation and healing and casting out evil spirits and having authority. Then, in a dramatic turn of events, the Holy Spirit was promised to the followers of Jesus so that the followers of Jesus could carry on the ministry of Jesus to the world. To be a comfort, the Holy Spirit to be a comfort to them, but also the power to proclaim the gospel to the world. Jesus said, it was better that I go away that you understand this. The Holy Spirit was given as a gift to the church after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. The Holy Spirit now fills the believers in the last days. Okay, so I, I want to I clear up some misconceptions about who the Spirit of God is. So first thing, who is the Holy Spirit? From our text, who is the Holy Spirit? Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a power. 
The Holy Spirit is called the parakletos or the paraclete. Or the, um, in, our, in our translation, our language would be the Holy Spirit's a counselor. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives support. I'm going to read this very slowly and I want you just to marinate on these words. The Holy Spirit is a helper. The Holy Spirit is your helper. The Holy Spirit is an advisor. Listen, I mean, do you, do you guys realize, do you guys see how badly you need the Spirit of God? How, much, how, many, how many people you ask on like social media and through a therapist and through your friends on advice? The Holy Spirit is the advisor. The Holy Spirit is a strengthener. The Holy Spirit is an encourager. Holy Spirit is an ally. Holy Spirit is an advocate. Jesus was the incarnation of the first paraclete. He was an incarnation of the first comforter. He was the one who came and gave us help, who saved us from our sin, who was our perfect advisor, who was the strong man who came in and encouraged us, who was our advocate standing before the Father with blood-pierced hands and saying, I bought them with my blood. But then, but then Jesus went away and gave us a replacement who would live in us, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, who lives in us to carry on the teaching and the testimony that Christ started so that you and I can be little Christs. You and I can be micro-Christs all over San Francisco because we have the Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit is a person, and because the Holy Spirit is a counselor, did you know the Holy Spirit prays for you? The Holy Spirit prays for you. Isn't that amazing? Romans chapter 8 says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Has anyone ever been there like, you go to pray, you don't know how to pray? You're like, what do I pray for? Uh, help and like strength and uh, like you don't know what to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. The Holy Spirit, when he intercedes for you, there's not even words sometimes. They're just, mm. That's it. It's like, mm. That's how the Holy Spirit prays for us sometimes. Like, we don't know what to pray, and we're in the midst of, like, a very difficult situation, and the Holy Spirit just stands and just goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> don't you need that sometimes? Like, that's what the Spirit does. And he who searches our hearts, and he knows the mind of the Spirit. So he knows the mind of God, and he knows our mind and our heart. He knows the heart of God, and he knows our heart. And he brings the two together because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. He knows what God's will is for you, and he starts to, he prays for you. See, there have been times that I didn't know how to pray. I just sit there in silence and I have the sense of being comforted. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that I saw an angel and then I just moved on. You guys remember that? I said, yeah, I saw an angel on 16th Street. And, um, and then I just left it hang there. So let me share with you. Because this was, this was the paraclete. This was the comforter. If this didn't happen, I probably would have not, I would not probably be here. When we were moving up, when we heard God, and this is a whole different story, when we heard God that he wanted us to move to San Francisco to plant a church, 
I got with a couple of friends, uh, Britt, Pastor Britt, uh, Pastor that uh, Reality Carpinteria, Pastor G and Tim from LA and Josh from Stockton. And we all came to San Francisco just to pray and scout. We called it our scout trip. So we came here and we're just walking around the city and I came here excited like, God's calling me to San Francisco. I want to go see what ministry is like there. I just want to get the climate of the city, blah, 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 blah. And I've always, we, my wife and I have vacationed here a ton and we love this city, but like moving here and starting a church here is a whole different gig. So we got here and by day, by the end of the first day, into the second day, into the third day, I kept falling further and further into deep, deep depression. Like a depression that I've never sensed before. Like not just an inadequate sort of, I can't do this, but like there's no way, God, you're, 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 you're calling me, I, I'm going to die. Physically, I'll die. And I started the trip like excited, like I know what to say, I think I know, and, and, and this video hasn't come out, it won't, I have it tucked away somewhere deep. But we're on top of um, uh, Ashbury Heights, and we just have a video camera. And Britt's like, hey, I want you to do like a little promo thing for the church. I'm going to videotape you. You're going to talk to the church about like, this is San Francisco and all this other stuff. And Tim was born and raised in the Bay Area, so he's giving me talking points. So I get on the video, and I'm like, why? Why? I don't know. This San Francisco is, and I, and I, I and, and not joking, Britt told me this later. He's like, dude, when we tried to film you talking about San Francisco and how you were excited about moving here, I turned to Tim when you weren't looking going, this, this guy is not going to make it. Like he's not going to, this is not going to be a good thing. So the next day, <laughs> we go to breakfast at the pork store on 16th and Valencia. And we're meeting a pastor there who was a local pastor at the time here. And he's talking about ministry in San Francisco. And he's throwing out these words about culture and changing this and blah, 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 all this stuff, right? Stuff, crap church planners talk about. And, and I'm sitting there, and as I'm eating my, my, I wasn't even eating, as I was listening to this guy talk, you know how, like, someone's, their mouth is moving, but you can't make out what they're saying? It's like, mwah, yum, mwah. It was like that, and I was looking at him just sinking into depression, going, I can't, I don't even know how to spell culture. Like, what are you even talking about right now? And Britt looked, he's sitting next to me, he looks right at me, and he goes, I think Dave's going to have a heart attack right now. So he looks at me and he's like, dude, snap out of it. Like, you're looking at him like you want to kill the guy. Like, you're just, <laughs> snap out of it. So I didn't even eat my breakfast. We got up, we walked out. We're right on the, right, 16th and Valencia. We're standing on the curb. And we're about to walk to the car. And Britt goes, hey, guys, stop. We got to pray for Lomas. He's going to die. Like, right now, we got to pray. So we're on 16th Street. And they're laying hands on me on 16th Street. And I don't, I mean, I, I didn't know the city that way, so I'm just like, and they're praying, and then all of a sudden, um, I mean, 16th Street's pretty busy. It was like Wednesday and mid-morning. People were trying to pass, were passing us, and then we felt like someone like walked right up next to us, like they wanted to pass us. So we're like, I was praying, and so we kind of step forward, and they get closer. We're like, all right. We get, they get closer, and Britt's praying, and then I'm like right on the curb about to fall off, and they're, they're right there, and, and Britt just ends the prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. And then there's, there's a, a couple, an African-American couple, tall, I mean, dressed like right off the set of Mad Men or something. In a nice hat, dressed to the nines, uh, a father, a, a wife, or a mom, father and a mom, and a little like nine-year-old girl with a beautiful white dress on with a little thing around. And we looked at him, and Britt's like, whoa, hi. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, hi. And, and Britt goes, hey, thanks for praying with us. And they said, the guy said, Wherever there's prayer, we're there. 
and they just walked right in the pork store. Okay, I, I, I mean, I live right around here, and I have not, I don't, I don't even know if I'd stop if I saw someone praying for someone on the side of the road. And so Britt, because Britt's just animated, he's like, oh my gosh, and he runs across the street to the car. He's like, ah, and he starts screaming, and he runs. And I'm still like in a depression state. And I just walk away going, all right, well, that was weird. And I, I walk away, seek into depression even worse two weeks later. Um, I, tra- I changed my plans. I'm not going to San Francisco. My wife calls Britt and Jean, like, you got to come pray for my husband. He's like, I've not seen him like this. My wife doesn't normally do it. Like, you need to intervene. We need an intervention here. They come over. They pray for me. The next morning, I'm up, and I'm like, God, I just don't want to go. I can't go. There's no way I can go. And then he reminded me of that very moment. Standing on 16th Street, praying, those people. And it was like the Holy Spirit said, I have, you're not alone. You're not going there alone. I have my angels there. I have people there. And it was like for a a, a second, I got this glimpse of like, oh my gosh, Hebrews talks about how we entertain angels unaware, like, I mean, this might get trippy for some of you. You're like, what? What's going on? Okay, that, just wait. for When we get to he- the book of Hebrews, and I'll explain. But this was, this was like um, the Holy Spirit praying for me and then like calling Mayday. Like, Lomas is going down. He's not going to end up there. He's going to die. He doesn't have a heart attack. And the Spirit of God sending a physical comforter. Like, and at that, it, was, it was that moment when I realized that those were God's, I think God's messengers, sent to encourage me at that very moment that like sparked something in me going I'm not if I go there I'm not alone like God has people there God has a presence in that city I'm not going alone the Holy Spirit does this this and sometimes it's made manifest and through people sometimes it's made manifest through angels I wish that angel would have said fear not I would have been awesome (laughs) fear not but he didn't The Spirit of God is a person. The Spirit of God throughout the Old Testament manifests himself as a person. The Spirit of God comforts us. The Spirit of God prays for us. The Spirit of God intercedes for us. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, number two, and this will be the last point, the, 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 Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit and God are used interchangeably in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit has all the attributes of God. The Holy Spirit is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. It says in 1 Corinthians 2 that he searches the deep things of us and the deep things of God. The Spirit of God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere all the time. When David prays, when he's in depression, he prays like this. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I run away from you, God, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. I've been reading a book called Season of the Witch about the history of San Francisco. Surprising how many people flee to San Francisco to run from God. If that's you and you're here, you can't run from God. 
Where can you hide from God? David said, if I go to the depths of Sheol, if I go to my grave, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will uphold me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me. David dealt with depression. If you read the book of Psalms, you'll see that clearly. Surely the darkness will hide me and the light became night around me. It's probably one of the best descriptions of what depression looks like and feels like. But he says, even the darkness will not be dark to you, God. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is light to you. If I go to the deepest, darkest place emotionally, you are there. If I run to the other side of the world, you're there. If I go to the deepest part of the ocean, you are there. Where can I go from you, O Spirit of God? And the Spirit of God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. This is seen in creation. This is seen in new creation. This is seen in regeneration. So the question is, do I have the Spirit? Do I have the Spirit of God? Every believer has the Holy Spirit given to all believers at conversion. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says, you, speaking to the church, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. And so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies because by this same Spirit living within you. So, you have not received the Spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. If you've been adopted by Christ, if you've been adopted by God and brought into his family, you have the Spirit. You received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now you call him Daddy. Because of the Spirit, you call him Abba. You call him Father. For a Spirit joins with our Spirit to affirm that we are God's children. See, by the Spirit, we call God, the holy God of this universe, dad and he's a good dad he knows how to give good gifts to his children he knows how to discipline us rightly he knows how to love us and comfort us and he knows how to confront us as well so what does the holy spirit do now, this is where we'll i'll cut it off and we'll have to move on in the following weeks when we look at first corinthians 12 but what does the spirit do the work of the holy spirit is to manifest the active presence of god in the world and especially in the church what the Spirit of God does is he manifests the active presence of God in the world. What the Spirit of God does in our church today, if we are obedient to him, is to show what God is like in the church. To show that God is among us, that he's active in healing and restoring and encouraging and seeing us and saving us and redeeming us and loving us. This is what the Spirit does. And this is what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. And what he wants to write about. He says, I want to talk about the spirit, the, what, the, what the Spirit of God is up to in your church. So, let's do that. This is how we'll close and move on to communion. What's the Spirit of God up to in our church? And this is what I believe the Spirit of God is up to. I believe that the Spirit of God wants to mature our church. 
mature us. Emotionally, in the way that we relate to one another, he wants us to grow. Spiritually, in the way we use our spiritual gifts and hear from God, we, want, we need to grow. For this to happen, I think we have to realize something. Because the Holy Spirit is a person, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be hurt. The Holy Spirit can be saddened. Ephesians says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whom you were sealed on for the day of your redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ and God forgave you. I believe before we talk about what the Spirit's up to in our church, we have to recognize that we have neglected and we have grieved the Holy Spirit. And wrong things that we've done. We've brought Christ, we've brought the Spirit of Christ along there by association. And so Paul will say a couple verses later, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, church. Understand what God's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. See, there are a lot of us who turn to substances to cope. Filled with things rather than the Spirit of God. I think all of us might be guilty of this. Might be filled with lust or power or the love of money or drugs or drinks or food. When we can't deal with life, we look to other ways to cope, and it grieves the Spirit of God. When we don't turn to God and go, I need to be filled with the Spirit of the living God, not be filled with this drink, so that I'm, all this numbness, all this pain goes away. Not be filled with this drug, not to be filled with this, whatever it is that we look to and turn to. And that's why I've had you guys just like, put you, please, all of us together, let's just put our phones down for a second and just be present to God, because God might want to be speaking to us on ways that we've grieved him. We get so bored and alone and we turn to our phones or we turn to drinking or we turn to drugs or we turn to whatever that thing is instead of turning to the Spirit of God. And if we're Christian, that grieves God. That grieves him. You have everything you need in me, the Spirit would say. I am your comforter, your ally, your support. I am everything you could possibly need. But you don't come to me. The invitation to us today is to repent and to be filled again with the Spirit of God. And what the Holy Spirit does is he draws us to Jesus. Because only there can our guilt and our sin and our shame and our brokenness be dealt with. Because his body was broken and his blood was poured out for us. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he draws the church to Jesus. Allow, let's allow the Spirit of God today to draw us to Jesus. God, I pray as we respond to you now that we would give you space in this room this morning to hear from you. I believe that you're, you're going you're to convict some people in this room, but it's a good conviction. It's not a condemnation, but it's a conviction. There's a huge difference, God, and I believe that you're bringing conviction. 
I believe that we've grieved you, God, and we repent for that. Together we say we repent. Our Holy Spirit, the way this church has grieved you. The way that we have used and misused power. We have grieved you. We repent. The way we used and have misused our social life and our money and our bodies. We've grieved you, Spirit of God. We repent. God, as we repent, we pray that the sweet presence of the living God would fill this room. And together, not just personally, but, but corporately, God, would you, would you allow the presence of God to be in here that we can experience it, that we can taste and see that you're good, and that you would speak to us, that you would manifest the Spirit of God in here. But bring comfort to people, courage to others. A word of knowledge, a word of wisdom that you would heal people from their sicknesses in here. That you would do miraculous things, that you would meet people's needs in miraculous ways in here. That come in here and have tremendous need. There's no way that they can meet that need themselves. And you would meet that need, God. Work ways where we all can just point and say, that was God and that was it. It was God. That's the only way we can explain it. That was God. Do that. As we turn to you, Holy Spirit, we say together, we just don't, we don't fear how you want to manifest yourself. We know that it'll be, it'll, it, there's ways for it to be explained biblically. And we know the outcome is just the, the we bring glory to Jesus. So do that in here this morning, in Jesus' name, amen.